0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Monday, August the 1st, 2022, the beginning of August, the hottest month, I think, or perhaps with July, the hottest month. And the news on the climate front is hot and depressing. Guardian has a big piece today that um, U.S. cities are at risk of Middle Eastern temperatures hotter than Dubai by uh, the end of this century, by the beginning of the 22nd century. But you don't have to wait until the beginning of the 22nd century, where most of us won't be around to understand today's climate crisis. David, you say over time, how much time exactly do we have? It seems as if we don't have a great deal. One another prominent American environmentalist, Eugene Linden, was on the show recently talking about how the path to a livable future is becoming narrower and narrower. Um, without wishing to cry wolf, what kind of time frame is facing us on this day?
1: Well, I think that, in, and I think we don't know, <laughs> um, because what's very clear from the science is exactly what you said at the top of today's show. The probability of these extreme events, big wildfires in California, flooding we've seen in Kentucky, hurricanes that we've seen uh, coming through Florida. We're just, in, just a month away from the beginning, official beginning of the Atlantic hurricane season. The probability of those kinds of events goes up, especially very strong ones. and and But we don't know exactly by how much. And we don't know if there's any cliffs out there, any points of no return. It looks likely that some of the ice sheets become more unstable or destabilized completely. Uh, with more warming but we don't know exactly when that that will be so I, I think the reality is that even if we make a lot of progress in cutting emissions and we're beginning to make some progress in cutting emissions we make a lot of progress in cutting emissions the world is in for a substantial amount of warming it's because the gases that cause climate change are long, mostly long-lived gases, so they build up in the atmosphere year after year after year. And once you get serious about it, and we're 30 years too late. You get serious about the problem, and you start making big reductions in emissions. That buildup is still already there, and so that's going to be part of the reality of climate change: is that we're going to have to learn to adapt to substantial effects of climate change, even if we get more serious about cutting the emissions.
0: Doesn't sound very encouraging, David. You are at UC San Diego, part of something called the deep decarbonization initiative it sounds very deep although i'm not sure how effective it is Uh, we've done lots of shows on decarbonization we did one for example with michael lennox wrote a book called the decarbonization imperative uh michael says that we have to decarbonize the global economy if we're gonna boil everything and i use that word carefully boil everything down to a single problem is it about decarbonization david
1: I think stopping warming fundamentally hinges on decarbonization. And decarbonization is both a technological challenge and a political challenge. And one of the things that Chuck Sable and I write about in this new book, Fixing the Climate, is how when you make progress on the technological problem, that also makes the politics easier because you disrupt incumbent industries that are responsible for lots of emissions. You create new industries. Think about what's happening now with electric vehicles where we have Tesla as a new entrant in an industry that previously was dominated by internal combustion engines. And you've got Volkswagen, which is going all electric and Volvo, um, parts of GM, which in principle are going all electric. And so by destabilizing the existing industry with new technologies, you then create an interest group and interest groups um, that want to have more destabilization and a bigger and a more rapid shift in those technologies. So fundamentally, decarbonization is essential. Fundamentally, that's an industrial challenge. Most of the science suggests that that's fundamentally also an electric power challenge. What we're going to do is decarbonize most industries, not all industries, but most industries by converting end uses to electricity and then decarbonizing the the electric power sector. So that's technologically that everything really revolves. Stopping warming really revolves around deep decarbonization uh, of the industrial system.
0: How structural is this, David? We've done a number of shows about the role of capitalism in climate change. Bob Keefe, who is an author but also heads up an industry alliance of corporations, suggests that American capitalism can be An ally in the war against climate change. Others strongly disagree. Jason Hickel, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with his philosophy of degrowth. Tim Jackson, author of Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, is in the Hickel camp. I'm guessing that you're in the Keefe camp. You've written some interesting stuff recently about the role of big business in taking the lead on climate crisis. Where do you stand on this, David?
1: I think capitalism is very good at responding to incentives. And for a long time, there hasn't frankly been much of an incentive to do much about the climate change problem. Where I see a lot of encouragement is those incentives are now really changing. Uh, a lot of it's led by finance right now, you know, huge uh, uh, fractions of the global financial community that in various ways realize they need to get serious about climate, partly because their their own investors are demanding that. And so you are see a lot more pressure being put on companies as a result of that. Where I do think it's very important for us to distinguish is the, the capitalist system is good at responding to incentives at the margin, uh, existing industries, adopting technologies that would help clean uh, clean things up and so on. By itself the system often doesn't do a very good job of doing really transformative uh, innovations. And often that requires government as well. And so a big chunk of this book is about how can government and business work together uh, in a much more cooperative way so that very risky, very expensive investments and in radical new technologies can be put forward. Look, for example, at advanced nuclear reactors, a whole class of new small modular reactors that could be very, very important. Those are not gonna go forward entirely with private capital alone. They need business, uh, they need government as an off taker. They need some uh, subsidy support. There is some subsidy support in a new, uh, new legislation that's working its way through the US Congress. And it's those kinds of constructive roles where you have the power of incentives, working on capitalism, that, that do a good job of, of encouraging firms to adopt technologies as they become proved proved up and as risks come down, along with business and government together, helping to invest in really frontier radical innovations. And, and it's that combination that's ultimately gonna be driving uh, long-term deep decarbonization.
0: You're presenting all this, David, though, as if the answers are all fairly self-evident. You had an interesting piece Uh, Earlier this year in April in The Times about why it's time to start caring much about clean hydrogen, you mentioned nuclear power. But these are controversial political issues. Not all scientists or policymakers are on the same side, are they?
1: No, indeed. And the hydrogen piece that we wrote in April in The New York Times, Phil Verlegger and me, we wrote that because um, the Russians had invaded Ukraine. And what we were observing was the European response to that, which um, the war in Ukraine is just horrific. But what the Europeans were doing was was doubling down on their strategies to reduce emissions from from greenhouse gases and from the existing fossil fuel energy system and one of the ways they were doubling down was investing in hydrogen because hydrogen can replace some uses of natural gas conventional natural gas including gas that was europe was importing from from russia and that to us was very encouraging because as those investments go forward then the cost of the technologies needed to make hydrogen those costs come down and because of a global economy uh those cheaper devices called electrolyzers those devices then become available to the entire global economy so when you roll that tape forward what you see is a is a system that because of these big government backed investments around radical hydrogen technologies, because of those, the entire planet has the potential to benefit from availability of lower cost hydrogen. And exactly that happened in solar. The reason solar energy is now the, one of the cheapest ways to generate electricity in many parts of the world is because early investments by government and business, initially by government, to lower, to to deploy more solar, brought down costs. Those costs then resulted in more solar being deployed and more interest groups wanting still more solar being deployed. And next thing you knew, uh, over a period of a few decades, you'd created a technological revolution that's really transformed uh, people's understanding of what the best way is to generate electricity. It doesn't happen quickly, usually. And so we have to be sober about the timescales that are involved here. But that's the that's the larger theory of, of change. And why, frankly, I, I not only do I think the incentives that work on capitalism are important to harness, But also, I think the incentives around globalization are very important because but when you make these technologies global, you have an entire global marketplace through which to bring down costs, improve performance, uh, and then deploy those technologies very widely.
0: You danced around the question a little bit on being for or against capitalism earlier. You had an interesting piece on the financial risks of climate change, suggesting that investors need to know what these are, suggesting that if they understand the risks, they won't invest in technologies or companies that compound climate change and climate problems. I'm getting the sense, David, that you are, when I scratch you a little bit, an optimist. I'm actually very much
1: an optimist. In the short term, I'm not an optimist. In the short term, I think the build, the continued buildup of gases means that we're in for a lot of warming, less than we thought was going to be Standard wisdom ten years ago, but it's going to be it's going to be more than two degrees of, uh, of warming, and that's going to mean all kinds of impacts. Over the long term, I'm an optimist, and I'm an optimist because of, because of this theory of change, because of the way technologies improve, and then the politics shift. But I think that the point you were making about capitalism and about the incentives for firms to disclose risks and so on is a very very important point. The system can't work if it doesn't know. Uh, if investors, for example, don't know what emissions are coming from different companies, what promises they're, they're, they've been making. I've been a big supporter of what the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States is doing with regard to putting forward rules that would require more disclosure. Um, we briefed the SEC um, several times as part of our own research. You showed one paper from that. There's a whole series of other papers at that same website at, at Brookings, the Brookings Institution, that are all about um, what we know uh, about firms disclosing information regarding the risks that, they, that they're they creating and the risks that they incur as a, as a result of climate change. And one, one of the thing, most alarming things that I've discovered in that work over the last few years is that some of our most vulnerable and exposed infrastructures are paid for by state and local government that raise debt in the markets. And that whole industry right now is, is flying blind for the most part when it comes to the actual risks that those infrastructures face and the risks that can whole communities in some places could be uninhabitable and people will leave and those uh the the debt that's raised for those infrastructures won't be won't be repaid so this is this is one of the many areas where you can't just assume that the capitalist system on its own is going to fix these problems it's
0: got to have incentives and those incentives you believe can be built in but what would you say it's it's not just hickle and jackson i had a Uh, Another environmentalist, Alice Ma, on the show last week, who has a new book out about plastic. She believed that that's the word that best encapsulates our crisis. What would you say to people like Ma and Hickle and Jackson? Would you just say, stay patient, believe?
1: No, I think, well, I think, first of all, the, the folks who have been highly activist in pushing the institutions of capitalism to change the incentives and to wake up. Those folks have done a really, really important thing. Um, I was involved um, somewhat last year uh, in the effort by engine number no. one to put pressure on Exxon, which has not been taking climate change seriously enough, and to remove several of their board members and put people on the Exxon board who know something more about climate change. And that's That was a shot that was not only heard at Exxon, but heard across the entire oil and gas industry. The European oil and gas industry is way out ahead of the American oil and gas industry on, on most aspects of climate change because they're under more pressure to change their ways of uh, operation. So I think where I would focus my effort is less on these strategies of uh, um, consuming less and so on, which I don't think are going to be politically viable. I don't think they're going to be politically sustainable and focus much more attention on getting the the wheels of of the capitalist system to work in a better way, uh, better lined up with making big reductions in emissions.
0: I have to say, I'm not convinced. We had George Monbiot on the show recently. I'm sure you're familiar with his new book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. He's been uh, with Bill McKidden, probably the most influential environmental journalist over the last few years, just won the Orwell Prize. But in my conversation with him, he suggests that we're probably going to have to have more expensive food. One of the problems with the global food supply is it's simply too cheap. Um, which is compounding the various kinds of crises, which doesn't go together with the laws of the market. Are we going to have to have some engineering of the free market, David, if we're to save the environment? Price restrictions, price controls?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be important for the price incentives to be focused on the problem we're trying to solve. Take food, for example. Food has a huge impact on the environment because of fertilizers, because of uh, expansive use of land, deforestation. The list is known. We've got to internalize those uh, costs and impose them on the industries that are then using land in that way. My own view is that the food system is going to have to get a lot more productive.
0: But ultimately, the around. consumers, it's all very well shoving the cost onto the producers or the the industries but ultimately the consumer is going to have to pay someone has to pay
1: yeah this is not painless is it no i i think and i think people who who believe that all of this decarbonization transformation of the industrial agricultural system and so on that all of this can be done um at zero cost which are some claims that are out there i mean that's a possibility i can't say for sure that that won't happen that zero carbon uh, energy technologies are gonna be cheaper than fossil fuels. My guess is that energy is gonna get more expensive and thus the real political debates around this problem include now much closer attention to Who's actually going to pay those extra costs? And how do we deal with, with um, lower lower income households that are already paying a large fraction of their total uh, household income for energy? We have to find some way not to saddle them with disproportionate costs. And now that we're really focusing on that, those are the real political debates that have to happen. My guess is the whole system is going to be the industrial system that causes pollution today. It's going to have to get more expensive if we're going
0: to clean up that system. Your co author Charles Sable, suggested uh, when he came on the show that we need to rewire our democracy I wonder if we need to rewire our political parties did a show with a prominent scientist Salim H. Ali recently on the need for a, a science party a tech, technocratic party uh, you focused a lot of your work uh, David on politics and on trying to change people's minds and working with the conventional parties do we need new political parties new ways of telling the story about the environment in a political sense
1: I don't know the answer to that question i think it's an important question i think the the in the european context in these multi-party parliamentary systems we have in fact seen that the green parties in europe and so many other places around the world have had this really big impact on on mainstream politics it's one of the reasons why uh, almost all European governments now, whether they're left-leaning or right-leaning, have environmentalism, including climate, at the very center of their of their platforms. And it's an extraordinary accomplishment. And it's an accomplishment delivered first and foremost by the presence and the threat of loss of elect uh, of, of voters to, to, to green parties. The United States system, uh, because of the way our elections are run and the way people are represented in the US, the United States system is, is just much more strongly wired to a two-party system. Periodically, we have third parties and independents, and so on. There's some discussion right now about the Republican Party splitting into two, not because of climate, but for other reasons, lunacy uh, in the core part of the party. And um, uh, my guess is that most of those discussions will produce, you know, a party for a while, and then we'll go back to the to the two party system. So, I think it's an interesting question to entertain. My guess is in the American system that that changing the incentives for the existing parties. And also frankly finding places where we can make progress on the climate problem that doesn't just depend especially on federal politics where the gridlock in washington makes it hard to get anything done uh, that that's going to be the way the united states can make more progress rather than, than kind of swinging for the bleachers and trying to create a new party
0: david in your book fixing the climate strategies for an uncertain world you and charles sable write a lot about international deals, international treaties and organizations in confronting the crisis. You wrote a book, Global Warming, Gridlock, an academic book. Greta um, Thunberg, perhaps summarizing that book, said that a lot of the talk on climate change is blah, blah, blah. What needs to change on the, the global front? I know you you write a, a, in, in some detail about the, the Paris Agreement and the Montreal Protocol and the Kyoto protocol most of these terms give people a headache no one really understands what they are or what they stand for how would you summarize the importance of these organizations i know you you and charles are particularly enthusiastic about the montreal protocol
1: i would say we're overall we're not super enthusiastic about global diplomacy solving this problem um, and one even of the things we is like a
0: global problem i mean even if pollution that, that, crosses boundaries um,
1: That's one of, I think, actually one of the core reasons why we didn't get why the world didn't get started on serious solutions around the climate problem sooner, is that it's a global problem, absolutely. It ultimately requires global collective action, absolutely. But then the idea that that would be managed and created by a global committee where the rules of decision-making are consensus rules, and so nobody can agree except to the lowest common denominator, that was the big error. And so for decades, literally decades, the global community thought about solving this problem as a global diplomacy challenge, and this Instead, the way we're really making progress is in smaller groups of countries and firms sector by sector that are changing the facts on the ground and then making the politics easier europe for the most part has been in the lead on this um, parts of the united states in particular in the electric power sector have been uh, in the lead as well um, and some of, of, of uh, agriculture has been in the lead and a lot of efforts to do reforestation and create incentives for more reforestation, but by changing these facts on the ground, you then, working in smaller groups, make it politically possible to, to achieve much deeper cuts in the future. And so it's, in some sense, it's, it's, it's global cooperation but turned upside down, where you're altering um, facts first and then working out from small groups, smaller groups, and that's um, one of the one of the few areas of encouragement I see around the Paris Agreement, is that the Paris Agreement, which is this umbrella agreement under which lots of different things can can get done, one of the few areas of of, of really demonstrable progress is the Paris Agreement has allowed these smaller groups to now to now flourish. And and Glasgow, Scotland, uh, in November of last year, uh, which was the last big checkup on the on the status of the Paris Agreement. You saw all those groups there, the group around finance, there's a group around steel, on and on and on. And, and those are the places where, those are
0: the real engines of progress. So should we be, you know, Glasgow got bad press. Should we be encouraged by what happened in Glasgow last year?
1: Glasgow's diplomacy got bad press, or the press could have been worse. It could have been like the Copenhagen meeting in 2009 where everyone was so angry at each other diplomatically, they went home and they didn't even have an agreement. And that failure to have agreement is actually what opened the space for new ideas, including what ultimately became the Paris Agreement and and Glasgow. So there was a huge amount of attention in Glasgow to the diplomacy and literally fights about commas. That got a lot of press. The really big news in Glasgow, and Kasia Yanishek and I have a piece in Foreign Affairs, I think in February or so of, of this year, that that summarizes, um, I think, some of the good news there, in particular, around finance. The really big news in Glasgow is you saw all these industries there, present, making pledges and saying, here's what we're going to be doing. And, and they're not doing that just because they're charitable folks, well, that may be true as well. They're doing it because they're under immense amount of pressure from their shareholders and from activists to get their act together and to do something more serious. And that was the big news in Glasgow. But it wasn't. it wasn't diplomacy news.
0: Finally, David, a lot of people younger, you, you teach in university, so you spend some time with college students. The younger demographic seems to be particularly pessimistic. Indeed, lots of anecdotes and studies showing that one of the reasons they're not having kids or perhaps even having sex is because they worry about the future and they don't want to bring more people into a world that is being destroyed or a world that we're destroying. How would you end on encouraging young people that things aren't quite as bad as they seem?
1: Well, I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the um, anxiety that seems to become pervasive, especially in the younger generations around this problem. This is a real problem, and we have not done enough to address it, but we also have a bunch of ideas and now realities around how to bring down emissions. I would urge people to focus on that um, and to recognize also that that the, the economy benefits from youth and from ideas, and the countries that are frankly having the hardest time are the countries where the population is the oldest. Um, and so I, I think this is not a case for not having children. This is not a case for not uh, thinking about the future. This is a case, in fact, for the opposite, for, for actually investing in the future and working on these solutions. And there I'm also very encouraged. It's extraordinary for me to see, I'm, uh, I'm a professor of engineering and, uh, and it's extraordinary for me to see in particular, the number of engineers who are now are devoting their scarce resource their, scarcest resource, their time to working on this problem. And that's, I think, very good news.
0: I hope it's good news, David. You've almost managed to cheer me up, which is a hard time to do. <laughs> Doing um, my best. But uh, I hope you're right. Um, it's, it's almost like a horror, a Hollywood. You're in Southern California, a horror, Hollywood narrative. Things are really bad, but in the end, the story's going to end well. Maybe, uh, maybe some of our friends in, in Hollywood need to make a, a movie about it. But my final, final question, people are going to be watching this and thinking maybe David's right. I hope he's right. What can I do? What's the role of human agency here, David? What can ordinary people do, not people who run institutes like you, who jet around the world going to all these different events? Um, What what can we all do to actually ensure that this has a good rather than a bad ending, a a healthy ending rather than an apocalyptic one?
1: Yeah, I do two things. First, um, I would... A lot of people ask what they can they do in their own behavior to control their emissions? The way to get started on that is to figure out what your own emissions are. So there are several calculators online, EPA and others have, uh, I think Rocky Mountain Institute has a calculator. Go figure out what your own emissions are. um, And Google, Google, personal emissions, CO2 emissions calculator, find one of them and figure that out and figure out where your leverage points are and where you're really willing to make trade-offs. That's your own personal life. The second thing I'd do is I'd, I'd look at yourself and ask, what is it that I can contribute to this as a voter, um, as a somebody who's uh, gonna go get a degree in engineering, somebody who's gonna run a company, somebody who's gonna go stand in the barricades and tell people that they need to change their behavior. What is it that you can contribute and as you use your scarcest resource, which is your time, how do you use your time more effect, most effectively to address a problem like this? And I think those two approaches figure out what your own behavior is doing and how, to, how the emissions and where you have leverage on that, and then figure out how you can use your scarce resource of time. Those two things could add quite a lot.
0: Well, a little bit of Southern California sunshine to our early August Fixing the Climate Stretches for an Uncertain World, co authored by Charles Sable and my current guest, David Victor. Congratulations. David, on the new book. Uh, What else are you reading? Anything else interesting that might cheer people up even more?
1: Uh, Well, I've just finished reading Beyond the 100th Meridian, which is this amazing biography of John Wesley Powell, the first person to go down the Colorado River. And it's about the opening of the American West. Um, And one of the many things that it's a reminder about is that we knew a long time ago that um, our ecosystems, especially in the West, were not designed with the water flow for what we've been asking and we should have worked on that problem much earlier so that's one of the things i'm reading that's a terrific book